Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. And this week, we are ripping off Invisibilia. Just kidding. We're going to be investigating some of the invisible forces at work in the world, but they're more physical than psychological. Gases, smells. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lights. Though, as you'll learn from our two guests this week, these things can have some pretty extreme psychological effects on us. So they put this enriched carbon dioxide air in a mask, let her breathe it, expecting her to just react normally. To their surprise, she was almost immediately clawing at the mask, trying to get it off her face. She was very, very frightened. She felt a deep, deep panic. That was Sam Keane with a teaser from his new book, Caesar's Last Breath, which decodes the secrets of the air around us. But before we get to his stories about the gases that make us laugh, give us life, and sadly kill us, we're going to be talking about something intimately linked to gas. Or at least certain gases. Smell. Melanie Kiekel's new book, Smell Detectives, is an olfactory history of 19th century urban America, including how odors, good and bad, were essential to the budding environmental movement, plus answers to a couple questions like, what's the connection between bad smells and disease? Why does New York still smell? And why should we care about our noses when we've got science to tell us what's bad for us and not? 
Melanie came to the studio to tell us a little bit more about how to follow our noses. Thanks for being in the studio with us, Melanie. Oh, thanks so much, Stephanie. I'm excited to be here. So Smell Detectives is about something invisible, which is kind of hard to research. So how do you go about investigating the science or the history of smells when it's not really something that we're able to talk about so easily? I think um, as a historian, I start with the thing that all historians go with, which is documentation. So when I first started this book, I literally went into the archives, and now that we have digitized newspapers, that was a huge boon to me. I searched newspapers in the 19th century for mentions of smell, any and all mentions of smell. They're few and far between, but once I figured out what people were talking about when they talked about smell, then I had purchase into lots of different conversations that were about health, that were about urban growth, um, that were about fresh air. I learned what their words for smell were, which are uh, some things that are different. I wasn't expecting effluvia, for instance, always means smell, just about. Um, I also discovered that offensive really meant offensive to smell. And so once I figured out their language, it's kind of like breaking a code, then I was able to understand what they were talking about. And that led me in some really fascinating directions, um, particularly because they were grappling as well with how do you deal with a problem that's invisible. Um, And that led them to try to make it visible. And so one of my favorite things in the book are the stench maps that I found, where boards of health were trying to make smells visible by actually showing where they originated in cities and then where they went. Um, Because one thing with smell is it always has an origin point, but where you smell that odor can often be quite far afield from where it started. So did you start with like smell and then move on from like odor to taste or something like they were just nine words really Uh (laughs) that I started with and they're the nine words we use for smell today so smell stench fetter that's f-e-t-o-r um rank um was another one aroma perfume can't forget the pleasant odors they're about as well although the stenches definitely get most of the attention so what roles did stench play in the 19th stench there I go again yeah, <laughs> see? what role did smell play in the 19th century why did you choose to focus on this particular area mm-hmm. so I was really interested in the 19th century because there's such rapid growth in the United States both in terms of the size of our cities as well as the number of our cities but also the growth of industry there are lots of things that come along with that that we tend not to think about and smells are definitely one of them the other thing that is really fascinating about this period is it's the period before germ theory Um, germs haven't been discovered yet or understood certainly until the tail end of the 19th century so before then people believed that bad airs Um, were one of the things that would make you sick. Um, And that could be anything from headaches and nausea to outbreaks of yellow fever and cholera. Um, All of those get blamed on miasmas, which are bad airs. They don't have to smell, but they often do. Um, And so anytime the air smelled bad, people believed that it was going to make them sick. And this was most famously... um, written by Edwin Chadwick, who's a British sanitarian. He wrote, All Smell is Disease. 
And that was really widely accepted. Few other people had to write it down. Everyone knew it. It was their common sense. The flip side to that is that good odors, and this is where it gets a little tricky. It's what they define as good. They're not necessarily odors that we think of as good today. Um, Cigar smoke is one in particular. It's a very pungent odor. They thought those could protect you by changing the air that you breathe. So one of the things that I was amazed when I figured it out is that we have this practice in the United States and lots of other places where people plant fragrant flowers around their houses. Lilac bushes um, are really common in the Northeast, for instance, often uh, below windows. The reason that they were planting those in the 19th century was to disinfect the air as it blew from the outside into their homes. Um, So the idea was that these sweet-smelling, pleasant-smelling flowers were going to purify the air so it would not bring disease into the home. And there's regional variations. In New Orleans, um, rosemary was the thing that everyone had in their window boxes. In New York, everyone was planting mignonette. I've read numerous recommendations. You have to have mignonette in your window box because of how it purifies the air. Wow. Well, things have changed quite a bit since the 19th century. Indeed. Indeed, they have. (laughs) So let's talk about the smell detectives of your title. What were they and what did they do? So smell detectives were, as I understand it, anyone with a nose in the 19th century. The title actually comes from... um, an irritated Board of Health president, Charles Frederick Chandler. He's on trial in New York City because citizens are complaining that the Board of Health is not doing its job. They're not abating nuisances. This is in 1878. And the reason that everyone's complaining is the, the Board of Health has put in a lot of regulations, but they can still smell the same things and they smell bad. Chandler's response is that citizens are very poor smell detectives. And I was like, well, that's a great phrase. And he goes on to say that the problem with citizens, so not Board of Health members in the way that he's defining that, is that they smell something that they perceive to be bad and they assume it must be coming from the first thing nearby. And Chandler, on the other hand, was dealing with odors that were um, traveling miles, he thought, from their origins to the people who were complaining. Um, But I really liked the idea of smell detectives. Um, I'd also come across a number of smelling committees, which were definitely people who were out there using their nose (laughs) to understand the environment and often doing exactly the thing that Chandler said citizens couldn't do well, which is trying to follow an odor to its source by using their nose. And were they successful? Is there a good example of a smelling committee being victorious? That depends on your um, point of view. (laughs) So there are quite a few different smelling committees. The first one I encountered is in the 1830s. It's called a smelling committee. But those were people who were sticking their noses where they didn't belong. Um, And so it really was a political joke. It wasn't people who were being smell detectives in the way that Chandler was talking about. In 1862 in Chicago, there was a smelling committee that was created 
by the city government. Chicago didn't have an active Board of Health in 1862, but they had a lot of smells because the city had really stepped up production, particularly meat production for the Civil War. And so they're getting a lot of complaints. People are worried that um, the whole city is going to shut down. The Board of Trade in particular is worried because the people who worked at the warehouses along the Chicago River were wearing nose guards. Um, as close as I understand, a nose guard is something that covers your nose, um, either pinching it shut so you can't smell anything or um, almost like a ventilator that's supposed to purify the air with charcoal dust um, as you breathe it in. Either way, it's uncomfortable. And the next step from a nose guard is not being there. <laughs> so that's what the Board of Trade was worried about. There was no Board of Health. And so the Board of Aldermen, who are the, the politicians who ran Chicago, decided they needed to do something. They start doing a lot of things, and one of those things is the smelling committee. It's people who have been deputized, so they're aldermen, deputized now as health wardens, as well as a chemist, and um, such reporters as thought they were stench-proof. <laughs> they all board a tugboat, and the chemist is taking measurements of river water um, as they travel up the river, but everyone else is just inhaling whatever's in the air and identifying, oh yeah, there's a problem. And they can see lots of things along the riverbanks that they determine are problematic. And then there are a few other smelling committees that actually adopt the name. That's what they're called both in the press and more formally. Um, but they're often committees that are created by boards of health. Right. So sort of like a first step on the way to these kinds of empirical regulations and environmental changes. So What's the the benefit of having smell committees, I guess, now, after having regulation, after having all of these empirical scientific methods for measuring pollution or whatever? Why use our noses at all? Well, we can still smell bad things in our air. And while it's true that not all pollutants smell, um, and they don't all smell bad in terms of how we perceive the odors and would define them, um, often when you smell something unusual in your environment, it's because there's a change afoot. So in Pittsburgh right now, there's an initiative. They've created an app that makes anyone who wants to log in a smell detective. And what you do is you register what you're smelling and you rate it. Now, they're particularly concerned about air quality issues. And so the only ratings are from fine to as bad as it gets. There's no smells wonderful <laughs> on their rating scale. But what they're doing with that information is they're correlating it with wind direction, with humidity, with um, what's going on at local industries at the same time. And they're using all of that data to understand what effect the industries in Pittsburgh, in particular industrial practices, are having on the air quality of Pittsburgh. And so I think that's a really great model for how we can still use our sense of smell um, and contribute to a lot of the empirical work, um, but also be aware of what is going on in our environment. And, you know, um, we still have a sense of smell for a reason. <laughs> Um, even though we don't believe that smells cause disease in the way that people did in the 19th century, we can still understand that what we breathe can impact our health. 
Right. And sometimes it doesn't always like there was the infamous maple syrup case in New York. Yeah, I love that story. <laughs> it's so weird. And then you wrote about this licorice smell in West Virginia, but that was actually nefarious. It was actually nefarious. And that, I think, is a particularly good example because there were a number of nefarious things going on, one of which is that industries weren't reporting the problems that they were having as they were supposed to do under environmental regulations. But when people could smell licorice, they started calling in complaints, right? This was an unusual odor. Not necessarily a bad odor, but that really depends on how you feel about licorice. I hate it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a polarizing (laughs) thing. Um, And... What that odor and tracking that odor allowed the environmental agency to do was actually find a chemical leak at a local coal processing plant that was running into the water supply. I mean, it was a source of pollution, and it was pollution that was not only in the air, but also in the water. So it was a huge problem. But because the company who knew they had a leak didn't self-report it, um, if people hadn't smelled it, Um, I don't know how long it would have taken for environmental protection to realize that the entire water supply was corrupted. Right. And there are other examples, too, that you cite where I guess our noses are the first red flags that something is wrong. And it's often women's noses, right? Yeah. With the Love Canal, DDT, Mm -hmm. even the Flint water. Yeah. And so one of the things that I write about in the book that was true in the 19th century, but I think is still carrying forward in our politics today, is that women are responsible for their family's health. Women, you know, are really paying attention to the home, and they're often the first ones to notice when there's a problem, whether that's a strange smell or it's a child who never gets well um, and wondering why that is. And so in a lot of places where we've had outcries against Um, environmental problems, women have been really at the forefront because they're the ones who, while they might not be trained scientists and they don't have the empirical data, they have really pulled together a lot of experiential data that indicates there's something wrong in this environment, something that's unhealthy. And they, as mothers often, enter our politics to ask for protection for their children. And that was powerful in the 19th century. And it also is powerful today. Right. And fresh air is ultimately the goal of all of these efforts, right? So can you talk a little bit about the origin of fresh air charities and breathing spaces? Absolutely. So one of the flip sides to miasma theory and this belief that bad smells are going to make you sick is that what everyone needs is good air. And this was one of the biggest problems as America's cities were growing and industrializing so rapidly in the 19th century. And so a lot of physicians, a lot of urban designers, that's what we would call them today, urban planners, though that profession didn't exist yet, were thinking about the city in ways in which they could make sure that fresh air entered and was accessible throughout the city. And so you get lots of different ideas that have to do with what fresh air is. One of the first um, is that we need to have parks within our cities because fresh air is the product of movement and it moves across space. And so there has to be open space. And this is one of the um, one of many of the reasons behind the push for Central Park in New York City, which is that it needed to be a reservoir of fresh air or a breathing space for the entire city. 
And then as you move later in the century and cities are still growing. <laughs> that didn't ever stop or slow down, really. Um, there are lots of other ways in which people are trying to access fresh air, many of those by leaving the city. So summer vacations are a really popular thing then, as well as now, to get out of the city, to get away from the heat, to get away from the smells. Um, and so the Fresh Air Charity was um, an initiative that started in the 1870s, the most famous is the Fresh Air Fund, which still exists and still does this. The Fresh Air Fund's main goal, as well as many other fresh air charities, was to take poor children out of the city, their families couldn't afford the same vacations that upper classes could, and take them into the country, to take them to the fresh air, because fresh air wasn't coming to them. Now, they also had moral agendas um, and lots of other things that they were trying to accomplish. But I think one of the things that made them so effective is that everyone, regardless of class, regardless of language, um, believed in the importance of fresh air to health. And lots of people still believe in the importance of fresh air to health. And you'll find that um, even though the Fresh Air Fund isn't quite as robust as it was in the 19th century in terms of the numbers, people believe that there's an importance to a change of air. Melanie Kiekel's book, Smell Detectives, goes into way more detail about the eponymous sleuths and our fractious relationship with the air around us, including some pretty cool diagrams from the 19th century on how not to ventilate your house and some neat historical smell maps. For modern smell maps, including Pittsburgh's cool new Smell Detectives app, make sure you visit our website, theamericanscholar.org, and click on the episode page. Plus, we've got a link to our Resurrected Shelf Life section, which introduces highlights from books that are very exciting, including one that ties quite well in with this episode. It's called Zapped, From Infrared to X-Rays, The Curious History of Invisible Light by the astronomer Bob Berman. So, back to gas. We know that it smells, but a lot of them don't have any smell at all including some of the most powerful ones, like air, for instance, which we breathe. But even if we can't tell it's there by smell alone, the gases around us can have a profound effect on us, from knocking us out, to making us laugh, to even causing the French Revolution. Yep, that's right. The deadliest gas outburst in history took place in Iceland in 1783, when a volcanic fissure spewed poisonous gas for eight months. The locals called it... Moduhardindin, um, pardon my Icelandic, Moduhardindin, whatever. <laughs> Sam Keen could talk about it. Locals called the event Moduhardindin, or the mist hardships, after the strange noxious fumes that emerged. Air as bitter as seaweed and reeking of rot, one witness remembered. The mist killed 80% of the sheep in Ireland, plus half the cattle and horses. 10,000 people there also died, one-fifth of the population, mostly of starvation. When the mist wafted over to England, they mixed with water vapor to form sulfuric acid, killing 20,000 more people. The mist also killed crops across huge swaths of Europe, inducing long-term food shortages that helped spark the French Revolution six years later. 
gas is a big deal. And humans started harnessing gases at around the same time as the smell detectives began sniffing them out. Sam Keen joined us in the studio to talk about two very different gases that humans have been manipulating for over a century. Thanks for being in the studio, Sam. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start and talk about the gateway drug to gases or anesthesia, Mm -hmm. Um, starting with the discovery and the first uses of nitrous oxide. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, nitrous oxide is known as laughing gas. Uh, It's a natural component of the air, so you breathe it in every time you take a breath, this little sort of nano buzz of anesthesia. And it was a popular drug in the late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, thanks in part to a man named Thomas Beddoes. He was a doctor who was running a clinic in Bristol in England, and he got the idea that he could use different gases possibly to cure people of various diseases. He was trying to treat consumption, uh, palsies, other things like that. And one of the gases he tried was nitrous oxide. And he had a very famous assistant, uh, one of the most famous chemists of the 1800s, a man named Humphrey Davy, uh, quite young at the time, who was helping out Thomas Beddoes. And they would create nitrous oxide in these silk bags that they would hand out to people and basically let them inhale it, uh, sort of get high on this nitrous oxide, and see what the effects were. In a lot of cases, they didn't know what was going to happen to these people. It kind of had two interesting effects. When they were dealing with the patients, the patients oftentimes did feel better after taking a few hits of this gas. Davy especially was also very interested in sort of the psychological profiles of the gas, how they changed his thinking. And he and his friends would then get together at night after all the patients left, and they would start to huff the gas too. And there were some very famous poets who came over, people like Robert Southey, um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge would come over, and they would take hits of the gas. And Davy actually thought it was very important to have these poets around uh, describing the gas because they're people who were very good with words, with describing things. They could really capture the feeling of being on this unusual drug and sort of explain it better than most people could. Uh, eventually, the clinic that Bedos and Davy were running determined that nitrous oxide wasn't that great. It wasn't actually healing anyone, even though it made them feel better. And eventually, they just sort of gave up on the idea of using nitrous oxide. But there was, in a book that Davy wrote, this one very interesting line where he noted that, you know, if he had a headache, if he had hurt his finger or something like that, you know, hit it with a hammer or whatever, he noticed that if he took nitrous oxide after that, it sort of obliterated all the pain. And it was just kind of a throwaway line in this book. But nowadays, it seems sort of obvious that, oh, you could use this gas as an anesthesia to get rid of pain during medical procedures, surgeries, things like that. But at the time, they just never quite put it together and figured out, oh, we could actually use this to make surgery better, to make it a much more humane enterprise. So how long did it take to put those pieces together and eventually use it? For surgery, because surgery was really grisly to begin with. It wasn't was it? pretty bad. If you go to an old uh, operating feeder uh, and you can see like the stands around it, but they also would say. Th- 
uh, strew sand on the floor to catch the blood. They had rings and pulleys in order to hold people down with ropes. I mean, oh my God. just the instruments. Uh, they had a skylight, too, so you, the screams could be let out <laughs> into the air. I mean... They there was no pretending that this was really horrible. And a lot of people, you know, would commit suicide rather than undergo some of the more invasive procedures. They just did. It was it was that frightening to them, kind of understandably. So it took about 40 or so years before a few people finally put it together that, oh, you could maybe use this in surgery. What happened was, after the work of Davy especially and his poet friends, nitrous became sort of a fat. It was kind of like you know marijuana or something, kind of a cheap high that a lot of people uh, indulged in. And there were actually traveling shows where people would go around, they would pull people on stage, let them huff nitrous oxide, and then turn them loose, and they would do funny, interesting things on stage while they were under the influence of this drug. And in the 1840s, uh, in the U.S., a dentist named Horace Wells in New England uh, went to one of these with his friend. Uh, They got on stage, they had a huff of gas, they kind of had fun frolicking around, And afterward, as the friend was coming down, his friend looked down and noticed his shin was gashed open and he was bleeding pretty profusely. And he was shocked because he had no memory of this. And it also hurt quite a lot. And he wondered, you know, why didn't I feel the pain when I actually knocked into, it turned out he knocked into some of the set on stage. He said, why didn't I feel that? Why didn't I feel any pain? And the dentist, Horace Wells, couldn't sleep that night because he kept thinking about it. He kept thinking, you know, I'm a dentist. I have to pull people's teeth out. It's excruciating. I wonder if I could use this to get rid of pain. And eventually, uh, Wells did sort of work up the courage. Uh, He went and found the man who had run the nitrous frolic, as they called them. And Wells had a dentist friend pull a tooth out from him uh, within a few days, and Wells didn't move the entire time. He was completely out. There was no pain. And eventually, Wells decided he wanted to try it out in surgery. And he gathered a few very eminent doctors. They were in a medical feeder again. They got a volunteer after the first one ran away. (laughs) And he went under the nitrous, and Wells tried to pull a tooth out. Unfortunately, he didn't go under deeply enough. The patient didn't. And he started to move a little bit. He groaned a little bit. The patient claimed later that he didn't remember anything. He didn't actually feel any pain. But the fact that he was moving and groaning uh, made people think that Wells had actually screwed up or that he'd been lying to them, pulling their teeth. And Wells kind of got run out of town after that. Eventually, one of Wells's assistants... Uh, a man named William Morton, who was kind of a uh, sleazy character. He was a bit of a confidence man, uh, a scam artist, basically. He eventually figured out how to use a different gas, uh, ether, in order to put people under. And ether ended up being a more beneficial gas for anesthesia for various reasons. Put people under deeper, uh, a little more easy to administer, things like that. And because of this confidence man, this scam artist, that was really the start of anesthesia, modern anesthesia that we have today. Wow. And do we know exactly what happens in your brain when you inhale nitrous or ether? Like, why do we understand why you lose consciousness or what it does? 
Yeah, on some level we do, because obviously it's interfering with the production of uh, neuron signals, and it's shutting down the higher parts of the brain, as opposed to, say, the brain stem, which controls breathing and things like that. Uh, but on another level, we really don't know what's going on. We don't know the details of why it shuts down certain parts so well and not others, and what exactly it means to even kind of shut these things down. They have done some studies recently where they can look at different brain waves emerge, and what they've noticed is that there are distinct brain waves at each stage as you sort of come out of consciousness. So it isn't sort of a smooth transition from being under anesthesia to being fully conscious. It's sort of more a stepwise progression where you come out in different stages. But what those brain waves mean, what's going on, is still a bit of a mystery, which is kind of frightening in a way that we just don't know exactly what's going on there. But it's cool, too. You mentioned that they've done some studies on Venus flytraps, too, right? Yeah. Uh, anesthesia will actually put a Venus flytrap under. So it will interfere with its ability to snap its leaves shut and trap insects, which is a really strange thing to think about, that a plant might have some sort of nervous system or something. And even more, that a plant's uh, nervous system might be similar in a way, similar enough to an animal's where it could actually put it under. So we should feel really, really bad if we accidentally kill Venus flytraps then. I mean, yeah, who knows? They're, they might feel it, yeah. Oh, man. Well, unfortunately, your book is not all jokes and laughing gas. And there is a particularly dark chapter in it on Fritz Haber. He's notable both for harnessing gas to give us life, using nitrogen for fertilizer, and then to kill in staggering numbers with chlorine gas. Uh, in the book, you call him the most compelling Faustian figure of science. What's his story? So he was a German chemist who was active in the very early 1900s and a very ambitious chemist, very ambitious scientist. And he first came to prominence by developing a very important process now known as the Haber-Bosch process, where basically he could take nitrogen out of the air and turn it into a useful product. Uh, nitrogen is very important for plants to help them grow, but it's very hard to turn the nitrogen in the air into ammonia or another precursor to fertilizers, things like that. So Haber was the one who figured out how to take all the nitrogen around us because nitrogen makes up four out of every five molecules that we breathe. There's an abundance of it. He figured out how to take it out of the air, make it into something useful. Uh, he became very famous for that, very rich for that, and very powerful for that. And even today, the Fritz-Haber process is vitally important for making fertilizers. Roughly half of all the nitrogen atoms in your body got in there due to fertilizers that were made with the Haber-Bosch process. So all of your DNA has nitrogen in it. Every protein in your body has many, many nitrogen molecules in it. So imagine half your body disappearing or half the world's population disappearing. That's what would happen without Fritz Haber. So had he just done this, he would have gone down as one of the greatest, most important scientists and most beneficial scientists in history. Uh, unfortunately for his legacy, World War I happened uh, kind of at the height of his powers, and he was a very staunch German patriot, and he decided the best thing that he could do, in addition to all these other chemical projects he was working on, was to develop gas warfare. 
Uh, Germany was not the first country to use gas warfare during the war, but because of Haber and his genius, uh, the German gases became much, much worse, much, much more deadly. And his little team, which included several future Nobel Prize winners, figured out how to produce these gases, how to launch them effectively, and they sort of ushered in the awful era of gas attacks, gas warfare, during World War I. And he became a, basically a pariah in the international community after that. There was talk of charging him with international war crimes for this. Um, he won a Nobel Prize shortly after the war for his work on the nitrogen process. And a lot of scientists protested this around the world, especially in the allied countries like Great Britain and France. And even, um, you know, 15, 16 years later, when Haber got booted out of Nazi Germany and exiled because he was Jewish, uh, a lot of people refused to take him in or refused to help him find work or find a new home because they were still resentful of what he'd done during World War I. So it's kind of this strange legacy of he'd done one of the most amazing, beneficial things in the history of humankind in figuring out how to make these fertilizers. But he also ushered in this really horrible, awful era of gas warfare that still makes us cringe today. Wow. And these days we still see reports of, you know, gas warfare in Syria and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's uniquely terrifying in a way that other methods of killing each other seem not to be, even though it's not the most effective these days. Right. Weird as that is to say. What's what is so weird about gas attacks? Why do you think we feel so scared of it? I think it's because gas and breathing is so hardwired into our biology, into our brain. It's something we do automatically roughly 20,000 times each day. We're inhaling these gases. It's vital. Uh, if you stop breathing for even a few minutes, you're probably going to die. You really need to have this constant inflow of air into your body or we panic. It really gets at some deep-seated fears inside of us. And I think that just has to do with our evolutionary history, our evolutionary legacy. Uh, in the book, I compare it to the fact that, you know, a lot of people are very scared of snakes on a visceral level, even though snake bites aren't that common. We don't see snakes in our daily life. Uh, but people have that instinctive, hardwired fear of snakes. And when we think about, you know, gases coming, suffocating, breathing in something deadly that burns our lungs, it just trips a lot of wires inside of us. Yeah, no kidding. And in the book, you also mentioned this weird case of a woman who lived essentially without fear. Mm -hmm. But there was one thing that she was scared of, right? Yeah, she's sort of a famous case in neuroscience history. I talk about her a little bit in my uh, previous book, The Dueling Neurosurgeons. She basically was incapable of feeling fear. Uh, she had some damage to certain brain structures that really control, monitor, process fear. And because of that, basically, she wasn't afraid of anything. She wasn't afraid of huge snakes, um, haunted houses. They, try, they basically would take her around um, and try to think up different ways to frighten her, just do anything they could to frighten or scare her. And they struck out every single time. Uh, you know, she'd go wandering through parks. She would get mugged. She would go right back the next day. This woman was absolutely incapable of feeling any fear, except 
a few years ago. They tried just one day a new experiment just to see what would happen. They expected it to fail. They didn't think she would actually feel any fear. What they did was they put a mask on her, hooked her up to a tank that was normal air mostly, except it was enriched in carbon dioxide. And if you've ever been held under or been unable to breathe, what your body is reacting to there isn't so much the lack of oxygen, it's the buildup of carbon dioxide. So if you breathe something enriched in carbon dioxide, it triggers a panic very quickly inside of you because your body associates getting rid of carbon dioxide with being able to breathe very quickly and very easily. So they put this enriched carbon dioxide air in a mask, let her breathe it, expecting her to just react normally. To their surprise, she was almost immediately clawing at the mask, trying to get it off her face. She was very, very frightened. She felt a deep, deep panic. And she was a little confused about that. She didn't really know exactly what that feeling was. It had been so long since she'd felt it, but she sort of recognized it as fear. And what the scientists think is that even though sort of the primary fear processing system in her brain has been dead and doesn't work very well, there's probably this secondary system inside of us that is connected just to breathing that can still trigger that fear and panic response. And despite the damage she had to other structures, that other system, the one related to breathing, uh, apparently was still intact. So they think they might have discovered this second brand new fear system inside of us that no one really knew about before. For a little pick-me-up after that downer of an ending, especially if you're scared of drowning, I totally recommend checking out the story of Le Petoman, or The Fartiste, which you can read all about in Sam Keen's book, Caesar's Last Breath. And you can see the calculations unfurl for figuring out just how many molecules from that famed emperor's dying breath you're going to inhale in your next breath. The answer? About one. That's it for Smarty Pants. Join us in two weeks for a naughty little episode about the unexpected history of pirates and English slang, where we'll be dipping our toes into the connection between Shakespeare and hip-hop and exploring the forgotten princesses, prostitutes, and privateers who ruled the seven seas in skirts. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs>